positive members and guests, and welcome to our podcast covering the Neuromuscular Subspecialty Day session, part of the 2021 POSNA Hybrid Virtual Annual Meeting. So not all content from Subspecialty Day sessions will be recorded and available in the virtual format. So this will be your only chance for hearing this content unless you happen to attend the session in person. I would like to introduce our moderators for this session, both the live and the podcast. We have uh, Dr. Andrew Georgiatis from Gillette Children's in Minnesota and Dr. Ben Shore from Boston Children's. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Very excited. So we have selected three papers from this session that we're going to highlight, and we have the opportunity today to go into a little bit more detail with those authors. So on the line with us tonight, we have Kristen Carroll, the Chief of Staff at Shriners Hospital for Children in Salt Lake City, as well as her PhD co-author, Dr. Bruce McWilliams. Um, we have Dr. Matt Holansky, the Chief of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. And we also have with us Lauren Heyer uh, from Shriners Hospitals for Children in Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you guys for being here. For having us. Yeah, thank you. And so um, I just wanted to kind of warm you guys up a little bit and uh, also let the listeners know a little bit more about you guys. This is kind of a unique chance to do more than just present your abstract and uh, tell us what it means. Um, but I wanted to know, maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Carroll. Um, what is your favorite surgery to do if you had to do just one? I think I really enjoy tendon transfers a lot. <laughs> um, I, I love anterior tip tendon transfers for club foot. I realize that this is neuromuscular day, but, um, I just, I, I, I think it's a nice clean surgery that acts like an internal brace. And I, I like that. I think that's a, a great gamesmanship answer to get all of the tendon transfers in there when I limited you to just one. That's great. Um, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Heyer, what would you say is your favorite surgery to do? Um, I'd say my favorite is probably open reduction of a hip um, with a close second being a vidro dega. Very nice. Dr. Lansky. I would say I would say the bilateral VDROs and dega. Very nice. Very nice. Um, Dr. Shore, Dr. Georgiatis, you guys want to weigh in on this? I know you've been considering your answers carefully. Yeah, you gave us to the end. I, you know, I love doing like a little medial approach uh, to the adductor, in particular getting down to the psoas and just kind of showing the trainee how with a small incision you can kind of get right in on the hip joint. Um, so I, I still love doing that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think as a trainee, that's an intimidating place to be, so it's nice to have someone kind of show you how to get around in that medial medial area. Dr. Georgiatis? I would say um, really the whole family of guided growth in almost any location. We're finding more and more places where that is valuable, and so I think that's a very elegant, purely pediatric uh, procedure that has uh, a lot of utility in a lot of anatomical locations. Harnessing the power of the growth plate. Um, <clears throat> that is wonderful. Well, thank you guys all for being here again. Um, so we'll get right into the material. We're actually going to go in the order of uh, presentation on actual subspecialty days. So um, I'll give a short recap of our first abstract, and we'll get to jump right into the discussions. So first we have Kristen Carroll and Bruce McWilliams. And um, at the meeting, Kristen will be presenting her group's work titled 
severe hip subluxation, and non-ambulatory cerebral palsy, what factors lead to lasting success of reduction? So in this study, they reviewed 305 hips in 183 patients with non-ambulatory CP who had hip reconstructions and follow-up average of six and a half years. They studied factors that may influence survivorship, which they defined as maintenance of a migration index of less than 25%, uh, and this included age, initial migration percentage, the use of a pelvic osteotomy, among other factors. Through a stepwise regression model, they were able to determine that pelvic osteotomies positively influence survivorship with 69% of those receiving pelvic osteotomies maintaining their hip containment, whereas only 47% of those who did not get pelvic osteotomies maintained their hip containment at final follow-up. They conclude that the addition of a reshaping pelvic osteotomy is highly significant in the long-term survivorship of hip reconstruction in this population. So to discuss this further, I'll now turn it over to our moderators, Dr. Georgiatis and Dr. Shore. Thanks, Craig. I'm going to just jump right off just because I'm curious. Uh, what are the factors that help guide you in decision-making when you're deciding whether to do a pelvic osteotomy or not? Um, so this is Kristen Carroll, Dr. Shore. Thanks for that question. I, I think that, um, you know, this paper is actually one of those things that's kind of changed my thought process when I'm operating. Um, and it's kind of nice when research does that. I, I think before we had the luxury of, of combining three centers work, which I think is kind of the power of the study is the numbers, um, I was sort of in the camp, especially in young kids, to believe that if I could get the hip located with a VRO and it looked great, even if there was some acetabular dysplasia, I was willing to kind of wait it out and see if the acetabulum would remodel um, with the hip, with the, you know, the, the femoral head in a better position. And after looking at so many x-rays, um, again, with my incredible medical student who I have to shout out to here, um, there were two actually, Whitney Moss um, and Alyssa Thorman, who did an amazing amount of work on this. Um, it's really kind of changed that now I just am much more likely to undertake a pelvic osteotomy if I, in, if I see increased acetabular index on that side. Um, so, you know, for me, it's of course, if, if the hip is showing progressive subluxation um, and I feel like soft tissue alone is just not going to be powerful enough, which is part of the reason we chose over 50 as our mark instead of just over 30 to really make sure that we were looking at the worst of the worst. Um, I am just much more likely to add a pelvic osteotomy. I think the other thing that was really interesting for me personally was finding out that less than 20% of these kids had bad bilateral disease. I mean, you always think that windswept hips are more common, but this really proved to me how common windswept hips are. Um, and so I, again, I, I feel more um, comfortable undertaking bilateral surgery in a windswept hip, even if the contralateral side doesn't look too bad and adding a pelvic osteotomy to the side that looks worse after looking at this data. Dr. Carroll, can I follow up on that? This is Andy Georgiatis from Gillette. I was wondering, do you go into the case knowing that you're going to do a pelvic osteotomy or one or both sides, or is there any intraoperative decision-making? I'm asking in part because it's extremely common at my center to have VDROs, lots of arthrograms, and then possible pelvic osteotomies, especially in younger children. And so I'm wondering, 
And then also, if that's the case at your institution, what are you seeing intraoperatively that's making you think that capsular redundancy might be fine? Or is it frank subluxation after the media? Or what are you thinking intraoperatively? Right. So I think um, if I, uh, in, in, in my institution and in Spokane, which was the other sort of institution where a lot of these numbers came from, I think we are interoperatively, you think, okay, I'm going to do bilateral VROs for balance, um, even if one side isn't as severely affected. So that's sort of, I think, becoming more commonplace for us. Um, also to not have a big limb length inequality when you're done, you just take care of the worst side and end up with a big limb length inequality or, or pelvic obliquity. So I think bilateral is becoming more and more common for us. Um, and um, I think arthrogram is a great idea. We don't use them that much. I think I look more at the subluxation after a VRO to decide, okay, do I have to balance the soft tissues more? Do I have to approach the hip flexor perhaps harder than I did? Um, but if there is acetabular dysplasia and that child continues to be stable after bilateral VROs, I mean, as we all know, fours and fives are pretty fragile little, little kids. And the added blood loss, which is usually on average about 100 cc's, adding a pelvic osteotomy, you can't always do that. Um, but in, in my hands, if there is acetabular dysplasia, especially on the more severe side, and that kid is stable, I am much more likely to add a pelvic osteotomy at this point. And I don't know um, at other centers, is, this is the case, but we've been doing a number of femoral shortenings along with our VROs in theory to sort of um, make the muscles more supple by shortening the bone and therefore doing sort of a lengthening of the muscle by shortening the bone. And so it's nice to have that bone to use right then and there on the pelvic osteotomy. Um, without having to take more bone from the pelvis itself. So I think all those are factors that we think about. Do you guys, just to follow up with Dr. Georgiatis, Georgiatis do you guys actually do, uh, sorry, Andy, uh, arthrograms intraoperatively at all? Is that part of your armamentarium or not really? So I, I do do them, Dr. Shore, um, if I feel like the hip is not well seated after a VRO alone. Yeah, I think I, most I think of these kids, you can see the femoral head well. It isn't the same thing as baby DDH, where you really need the arthrogram to help you define what's going on with the femoral head. Yeah, I think that there is. Uh, I think my it, my practice is probably similar to Andy in that uh, almost all of these cases get an arthrogram um, because I think there are certain features that I think probably are not always appreciated on um, the two-dimensional imaging just because of the dysplasia associated with the neuromuscular hip. And, you know, one of the papers in this section really talks about that it's not all, you know, posterolateral um, insufficiency. And I think one of the downfalls of the, maybe the Aspadler index is just that it's, it's such a two-dimensional measurement. And so you may be only seeing the anterior or posterior aspect of the acetabulum and then making your measurement off of that, which I think is sometimes challenging. But um, but I think it's all very interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think those kids with anterior subluxation, those are the hardest of all to treat because you, you take out the antiversion and they still want to go out the front. They just more outwardly rotate their limb for you. And I, I find those to be very, very difficult. And perhaps the point when you add a Salter instead of a Dega, 
um, to get a little bit more anterior coverage. I don't know how the rest of the group feels about that. Can I ask, um, since we've kind of started to get into, you know, what people do in terms of decision making for this, can I also ask uh, Lauren and uh, Matt to kind of weigh in? Do you guys have an algorithm for how you decide if you're going to add a pelvic osteotomy in this situation? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, most of the time I, I, I have my decision made um, sometimes even before or often before I go to the OR. Um, if I have a borderline hip, then I'll use an arthrogram. Um, but if the, you know, if the acetabulum is clearly dysplastic, then, um, then I'll just go forward with the acetabuloplasty at that time. Yeah, I would just, <clears throat> I would just say, I, I think I tend to <clears throat> use the arthrograms a little bit more uh, on the younger kids. Often, you know, if, if, if there's any significant dysplasia, uh, I plan on going in to be doing the, 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 the acetabulum, but on the ones that you know, somebody that's very, very young, um, I, I, I will add an arthrogram. Um, but, but often, I think the author, arthrogram talks me out of doing the pelvic osteotomy more than it tells me to do it. And I don't know if that's the right or wrong answer that maybe I should be doing more of them, you know, especially with the results of this paper. Um, I think the age factor is the thing that I still am a little unsure of. And I, I, didn't get a chance to read the abstract. So if, if that adds to it, if I think that's the key is, is when there, how much dysplasia at what age is kind of the holy grail here of when you can leave it and just putting the head in will remodel versus, um, you know, should we just tip it down? It's not, it's not the biggest surgery in the world when we're there and it's fun to do. So, um, but but you, you feel bad doing that, thinking I may have to be back here doing it again at some time. Well, I was just going to ask you about that, Kristen or, or Bruce, just if you noticed anything qualitatively or, or, or quantitatively in the data so with related in, to in age. our severe hips, which we decide we we defined as greater than fifty percent MP. Um, we didn't find any difference if they were young or older um, on survivorship. The pelvic osteotomy was really the key. But in non-severe hips, so in those windswept kids where one side really isn't so bad um, and, uh, you know, starts with a migration percentage that isn't so frightening. Interestingly, in those um, younger subjects had more failures. Um, and, uh, you know, again, that less severe side didn't have the pelvic osteotomy. So this may be exactly what you're talking about, is in the less severe side, we didn't do pelvic osteotomies because we didn't think they needed them. And perhaps in the younger kids, even getting that femoral head in, the, the spasticity is just such a problem that the pelvic osteotomy maybe should be added later. Perhaps that means just with the younger kids, um, we follow them really closely and add a pelvic osteotomy on the less severe side if it's needed. That's fascinating. Can I ask a quick question on that? Did did you guys happen to look at did how many of these kids had baclofen pumps just of those young patients? Uh, because that's always the question. If somebody's spasticity is well managed, yeah. do we yeah. need to be as aggressive surgically early? And I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if if anybody knows. Yeah, we did not look at that specifically. I mean, we looked at kids who had soft tissue surgery at the same time. And that didn't seem to affect it, but that's not answering your question. 
be another interesting thing to look at in the future. We're going to move on. Um, we're going to go uh, over to uh, Lauren Heyer, who's going to discuss her team's work on outcomes of patellar tendon imbrication in Crouch Gate. In this study, she reports on range of motion, radiographic and kinetic results of performing distal femoral extension osteotomy using a patellar tendon imbrication technique for ambulatory CP in Crouch Gate. This technique is in contrast to other techniques for shortening the patellar tendon, which all involve disruption and reattachment of the extensor mechanism one way or the other, either advancement of the tubercle or shortening of the tendon with reattachment. So again, I will turn it over to our moderators to discuss the impact of this work. Uh, Lauren, great, uh, great paper. Um, you know, I think there's so much variability in this procedure. Uh, so it's always interesting to kind of see how other people do it. Um, and I think all of us probably, you know, as you start your practice, you kind of start in one way and then you evolve over time. Um, but maybe just to start off for the, the audience, could you just like uh, just elaborate a little bit on what this technique involves and how you do it in particular? Yeah, so um, uh, I guess I'll start by saying that um, I um, did my training in Greenville and that's how we, that's how I, you know, as a resident, I learned like, okay, that's just how you address the quadriceps when you do a distal femoral extension osteotomy. Um, I did my fellowship um, in Phoenix and um, they um, fell more in line with the Gillette way of advancing um, the either, um, you know, the, the insertion, um, either a periosteal sleeve if they're skeletally mature or advancing the tubercle if they are, um, if they're skeletally mature. Um, and so then going back to Greenville um, and jumping back in with those guys, I was just like, well, wait a minute, why are, why are we doing this way? Um, so that's kind of what gave me the idea of the study. Um, but this is um, a technique that John Davids, um, who's now in California, developed. He's actually since kind of modified the technique even more. Um, but basically, we do a transverse incision um, halfway between the, the distal polar of the patella and the tibial tubercle, um, skeletonize the um, the patellar tendon, and then um, basically just roll it on itself and imbricate it with some fiber wire suture using a um, uh, several like modified Kessler type sutures, um, and then so it's just I mean it's just kind of short and sweet. Um, uh, no, you know, other than the fiber wire, there's no hardware. Um, and then postoperatively, we um, uh, we typically just immobilize them in a in a knee immobilizer. Um, traditionally, we were um, a little bit more hesitant to uh, do weight bearing and range of motion, but we're kind of advancing our protocol um, currently. So um, the numbers that we report on are, are based on the old um, rehab protocol. So um, I hope that gives just a brief overview of the technique. Have you guys ever thought about um, using like a cerclage? Uh, wire or even fiber tape as a cerclage. Um, yeah, no, that's, that thought has definitely crossed my mind because um, that was that was um, also what we did in fellowship too. Um, but um, cur currently, we don't. Um, but it's definitely crossed my mind. It's just like another check rein um, to protect the imbrication and may maybe even allow more aggressive range of motion. Lauren, I have a question. Uh, congrats on the paper. I just saw it come out in GPO2, and there was kind of an illustration which really helped me understand what you guys were doing. Can you talk interoperatively? Is there any like stress examination of the repair? Like, do you flex it to 90 or anything like that? Do you stress it early on? Like, um, I'm wondering about that. 
And then did your mentors or those who you've collaborated with, have they talked about why they developed this? Did they develop this because in principle they didn't want to violate the tubercle or did they notice recurvatum or other deformities develop? That's something that we have kind of understood later on at Gillette happens a lot more than we realized. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good questions. Um, uh, first, um, no, we, we don't really stress it other, um, other than just kind of like tugging on it. Once we pull the, we usually roll it with either a Kelly or a Coker clamp. Um, and then, uh, once we throw the sutures, we kind of, we, you know, we tug on it and just make sure the sutures don't, um, uh, you know, are, 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 are sound. Um, but otherwise we try not to flex the knee, the rest of the surgery. So if we, if, you know, if they, if they need, like a, like a cast, just cause they're not going to be compliant. Then, uh, you know, we really try hard not to flex the knee, uh, the rest of the surgery. Um, and then as far as like where this was born out of, I honestly just have to ask uh, John Davids, just what, you know, what he was thinking. Um, I, th I think the bottom line is that when you do a distal femoral extension osteotomy, you really ought to do something to, to readdress or, um, retention the quadriceps mechanism. And so I think, you know, he, he, he maybe was just thinking like, well, I think this might just be a simpler way of doing it. And then it kind of stuck. Um, and, and that's just how, you know, um, why do you do it? It's just, it's the way we've done it <laughs> kind of, you know, I think some institutions, that's just how things go. So, um, uh, maybe turning the conversation. I think what's what we need to do now is really compare our technique um, to, to an advancement, to a shortening. Like how do we know that this is, um, this hangs in with, with the advancement and shortening um, until, until we really do a more, a more direct comparison. Can I ask what do um, the other panelists uh, do? I would, I, I was waiting. Yes. Um, I think, I think Lauren, there are a lot of people out there that do something very similar to what you're doing. I would add what Ben said. And, and actually technically I find it easier if you, if you use the Gillette circlage fiber wire tape, get your, even if you don't tie it, if you clamp it to where you want your patella to live and then do your imbrication, uh, it works very nicely. So then you can kind of hold it at exactly the right level you want and then imbricate it. Uh, healing wise, I have no idea how these do. I probably don't have the numbers as, as you've been able to put together to see what they look like. But Andy, as you said, we, we, we published a paper in Grand Rapids on that very early showing that, you know, you, you do tend to get, um, recurvatum and change that, that, uh, you know, tibial slope. The question I always ask and any, anybody on here can ask, is that a bad thing? Does that, does that help them? Or could that be even a standalone outside of doing as being as aggressive with the femur if you let the tibia grow a little bit. I, I, I don't know on, on all that, but I, I, I love, I love the idea. And I think uh, a lot of people do it similarly, especially in the skelly immature. Kristen, mm -hmm. what do you guys do? So we, um, it's interesting. One of my mentors was Dr. Jacques Destou, um, and he taught me how to imbricate early on. Um, and it's simple and it's powerful and in my hands it worked um and then Novacek's paper came out and i felt like i should be pure to the technique so um i started doing it his way but i love dr shore's idea of sort of combining the options um and thinking about doing a check rein as well as an imbrication 
because then you certainly could stay away from the tubercle and it would definitely speed up the surgery because this is a long procedure, especially if you're doing it bilaterally. Um, so um, I kind of, I love that idea. Um, and Lauren and I have talked about on our CP study group for the shrine, actually creating a multi-center to look at these two, which I think is sort of the ultimate answer. Yeah. Well, we're interested in doing uh, some imprecations here. Tom and I are going to do that soon together. So you may change our practice because of, because of what we discussed, some of the deformities we've induced. So Anecdotally, Andy, I'll say that I learned from you guys. Uh, not, you know, I, I didn't know how to do this. So I, I went and watched Tom. I came to this like surgery, the one day POSNA surgeries and the kid got a seizure and the case was canceled. But then <laughs> I came back for like a week and I learned it and I came back and I did it. And then... I had a few wound problems with the mm -hmm. soft tissue alone that uh, when you have those, you're like hooped if you've taken the tendon off and it's really not good. Um, and I had a couple of the recurvatum cases that Matt is talking about. And so I moved to exactly what Matt was talking about. So I take the fiber tape and that helps set the, the, the zone of where I want it. And I still use your guidelines of kind of like, you know, inferior patella, tibial spine kind of concept and either snap it or tie it with fiber tape and then do exactly what you were saying, Lauren, in terms of the imbrication. You don't even really need to do the Kessler so much because your cerclage is doing so much more holding. So you can just do some figure of eights with fiber wire. Um, and I think it's worked out well for the last seven years or so. And then that's a great idea to add the add the fiber tape because that, that wouldn't add too much to the procedure itself too. So. No, and you could still get away with it with a transverse incision because you could get the patella through the distal part of your femur incision um, mm -hmm. before you close, and that's where you would pass it. And then through your transverse incision, you could feed it and bring it down and then drill it maybe by just retracting and just going below the tibial tubercle or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, we're probably getting off topic today. <laughs> no, that was perfect. I think that's um, the kind of uh, discussion I think people want to hear. Um, <clears throat> but we will uh, move on. Um, and we're going to welcome uh, Dr. Uh, Matthew Holansky, who's going to discuss his work from his time in Wisconsin. Um, and this is titled Hip Pain and Scoliosis in Non-Ambulatory Children with SMA. So this is 24 years of data that was reviewed uh, to look at the prevalence of hip pain, hip instability, and also spinal deformity in patients with SMA types 1 and 2, or the non-ambulatory types. So these patients had modern medical management um, but were not treated with disease-modifying agents such as uh, nusinersen. They found 72 patients who met their inclusion criteria. Um, the hip pain was more common in the type 2 versus the type 1 uh, patients. This is 59% incidence versus 15%, uh, and uh, positively correlated with the number of SMN2 gene copies. So if you had more of these copies, um, you're more likely to have pain. Um, almost all patients had radiographic evidence of hip uh, pathology, uh, seems like mostly migration, uh, though none of the type 1 patients and only 18% of the type 2 patients ended up having invasive surgery. And so this is actually the largest assessment of hip pain in the reported literature uh, for this population. It has lots of interesting information to delve into, so I will turn it over to our moderators. Again, Matt, um, awesome. Uh, great paper and really important just in light of kind of how the management for this group of children potentially is changing. And I think we're all struggling to know with the disease modifying agents, what's the right thing to do. In our group, we have um, Brian Snyder and he's super aggressive with these hips now. 
and I'm not sold that that's really doing anything good. It just makes them really stiff. Um, uh, but, you know, I think the elephant in the room is, okay, so with this information now, how has this changed your practice? Yeah, so I, I think some of it comes to background. When, when, when I came to Madison, I, and this is almost 10 years ago now, I took over this huge population and was asking people what to do, asking Brian, asking other people, what do I do? Because there were definitely some kids who had some hip pain. Um, but there are a lot that do not. <laughs> and, and so, so that's where we started down this whole road and tried to do some big multi-center studies and it just didn't work out. So, so we finally said, fine, well, let's just look at our, you know, once the disease modifying agents came out, I think the game has completely changed. And so, you know, I would say, for me that the things that we have found are, you know, I think x-rays don't matter. That's one big thing I think we found. I think symptoms matter. I think having scoliosis surgery and if you fuse to the pelvis matters. Um, and, and I, I would say we, a fair number of these children didn't have all of their hip pain go away, but it seems like they peaked. And I think one of the interesting, most interesting things, unlike the spastic kids that we see that, that seem to have increasing pain as age goes on in the SMA population, it seems to peak around the pre-adolescent time period. And then a lot of the kids cope with what kind of pain they have. Now, I don't know when they get to their 30s and 40s, but we had even SMA kids into their SMA ones into their 20s. Sorry, that's my dog shaking his head. Um, that that didn't have pain. You know, their hips are out. They they just don't have pain, and the majority of them did not have pain. So I I think it validated us a little bit. I mean, I felt a little bit when talking to Brian and talking to folks who are more aggressive, like like maybe I'm doing these kids a disservice not doing the surgery, which I started out this thing saying this is my favorite surgery to do. I could have done a lot of it. We had, you know, out of these 72 kids, nearly hundred percent had dislocated, had, had hip pathology you would operate on if they had CP. And so we didn't, and that was just kind of where our institution was. And I think it validated that, yes, there is a subgroup. And for that subgroup, that pain does, it's significant. It, it, it is very difficult difficult to treat, but it's different than just the x-rays when you look at somebody with cerebral palsy. Do you feel like that question therefore is settled for you or is there a next step in trying to be even more objective about the things that you kind of said that you could have had more data on, like a more objective assessment of pain, but also some some health-related quality of life outcome or patient-reported outcome, because that's ultimately what we're all kind of in the business of improving, or I think we are, so... Yes, we've had a couple studies come out, and we have another one coming out with some PEDSQL uh, data that um, not necessarily directly related to the hip pain. But I, I'll just tell you, and I know you guys saw that if you saw the recent ad or the, the manuscript I sent, the people's pain scores, I mean, even the ones that had pain were ones, twos. Um, these aren't, this isn't the kids, you know, the cerebral palsy kids that you can't, 
get out of bed and they're, you know, they, they wince every time you move them. And these kids are verbal. You know, we don't have the cognitive problems with these kids. They can tell us, no, my hip's killing me. And, and so, I, yes, I think that would be a next step. But again, the reason we decided to kind of cut it right about, I think, 2017 was really when at UW, New Centerson came along. So we didn't want to cloud the data. You know, there may be a couple of kids who were in studies elsewhere, but we didn't want to cloud the data where that goes. I think moving forward, you know, I, I just see this, this study as kind of the baseline um, as we move forward of, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I have a feeling we're going to be creating a whole lot more surgery for us to do. The fact that we see that the kids with the higher SMN count, SMN2 um, copies have more hip pain. I think essentially adding new center center, adding some of these other medications where you're going to increase their muscle tone is going, if it doesn't prevent their hips from dislocating is going to cause them to have more pain. So Brian Snyder and, and the more aggressive folks may actually be right moving forward. That might be the way to go in these kids that have higher tone. But we kind of wanted to get this out there as a baseline to say, before you add these other medications, this is where at least the hips are at, if that makes sense. And it's, it's always super hard being an orthopedic surgeon and trying to write a paper on not doing surgery on x-rays. It's not a popular thing. So, Matt, this is Kristen. I have a question for you. Um, so one thing that's come up in our uh, clinic, neuromuscular clinic clinic, is discussing the possibility of guided growth for these kids. Um, uh, because it's not as aggressive for the kids. It can sort of help them as they go. Um, I'm just curious if you guys have thought about that at all or. In, in this population, we haven't, but I think it's a great idea. Um, I think knowing that essentially every kid has hip subluxation, you could just put screws in or do your drill of choice at a young age and maybe that would be enough. Um, I, I know, I mean, you know, as opposed to trying to guess who may need it or not, I, I, I don't know if it'll be enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and putting any implants in just with their bone quality is, I, I, I worry a little bit about that of just totally. causing a problem, but I think, I think that would be a much more reasonable approach. And, and I, I think if I could use a crystal ball to look backwards, I think on some of these kids who, failed initial therapy like we our, our our general our general kind of treatment plan institutionally was you know all different kinds of modifications orthotics different things and then okay let's do steroid injections let's do multiple steroid injections if that doesn't work what are we going to do and and um i think on the kids after a failed steroid injection and this maybe gets back to Andy's, Andy's question. I think the way it would change my practice is I think if I had somebody that didn't have a good response after that, I would do, I would try a hip reconstruction, especially if they were SMN, SMA2 kids that had or were going to need spine surgery. I would do those kids. Um, and, and you would do more surgery than you need. But we had, I mean, the, 
I don't want to belittle the kids who had severe pain because some of these kids had severe pain. I mean, and it's tied into other things. I don't know if other folks have experienced this or not, but a lot of these kids with SMA, while it's a motor neuron disorder, some of them do have weird hypersensitivity things, whether it's, whether it's psychologically or whether truly there is something in their neurons, they have a much lower pain tolerance or exaggerated pain experience. And, and we had two of these girls, um, you know, were, were miserable at the time they died with, with hip pain, belly pain, global pain. And so, so I, I really, it, it's a hard thing. I don't think every, I don't want to overlook those children, but to say, because three kids had extreme pain, we should operate on 70 of them is, is not the right answer either. I think we need to know who to operate on a little bit better. This is a fascinating discussion, I think, um, gives us some guidance, but also brings up a lot of new questions. So hopefully some jumping off points for future research. Uh, I would like to congratulate all the authors and their teams for their research successes. And also thank you for joining me tonight. I do want to make a brief announcement. So while uh, many of these subspecialty day sessions will be pre-recorded and hosted on the podcast like this session, there will be one live podcast episode that's going to be recorded at the annual meeting with all of our available podcast hosts and an esteemed research panel. So we'll be joined by Drs. Colin May, Colleen Sabatini, John Schinnaker, and Salil Upasani. We'll be discussing some of their research from the general sessions in Dallas. This will take place Wednesday following the pre-course just prior to the scientific sessions. So look for signs and information in the program. We're hoping for an audience and for some crowd participation to help resolve or stir up some controversies in trauma and infection. So tonight we had with us Kristen Carroll from Shriners Hospital for Children in Salt Lake City, Matt Holansky from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, and Lauren Heyer from Shriners Hospitals for Children in Greenville. Again, our moderators were Ben Shore from Boston Children's and Andy Georgiatis from Gillette Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. Again, I am Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt, and thank you all for listening. Great job. Thanks, Craig. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much.